So we got to talk about something that you said yesterday. Oh, God. What now? I want to know more about this theory that Kenny G and Weird Al are the same person. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We need to set up the story. Okay. So Leah and I went to a local theater program called My Way. A tribute to Frank Sinatra. Yes. Yes. And, uh, well, brilliantly well done. But the composer who was um, the ranger, I should say, yes. was playing on the piano. Which was really cool. Great arrangement. Just nailed it. One of, Also one of the best jazz piano performances I've seen live. But he has long, curly hair. He looks like Weird Al from, from behind. His face did not look that way, but from behind, definitely. Yes. And to which Leah says, you know who he reminds me of? Weird Al Yankovic. And I said... Who's to say that Weird Al Yankovic and Kenny G are not the same person? So allow me to set this theory up. Okay. Now, of course, this is well-researched. And when I say that, it's absolutely not. It's all horseshit that I'm making up. But <laughs> this is the least researched part of this podcast. Yes. Um, so think about it. They both emerge in the 80s. Oh, I mean, okay. We know that Weird Al Yankovic is a multi-instrumentalist. Good point. And can play horn instruments. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm just saying, in the most conclusive piece (laughs) of this series is, have you ever seen Kenny G and Weird Al Yankovic in the same room? Yeah, that's my dog sneezing. Thank you for joining me. We have a special guest today on this podcast. It's Brody Tarpley. (laughs) (laughs) Just give give the audience one more. Nope. He's going to do it. He's got that look. Do it. He's distracted by the birds outside. All right. Anyway, have you ever seen Kenny G and Weird Al Yankovic in the same room? I mean, I've never seen either of them in any room, so... Well, that's Minutia. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, no. See? That's all you need to know. You heard it here, folks. Kenny G and Weird Al are the same person. Living at Area 51. <laughs> We're going to find out on September 20th. Stay tuned. <laughs> Finally, I'll get all the world answers. Will, all the world's questions will be answered. On that note, I'm Leah. And I'm Bethann. And this is She Will Rock You. We're going to record that again because dogs are fighting. What the hell? Um, so. Hello. Hello. Are you ready to talk about. Well, do you know who we're talking about? No. We're talking about the who. Yeah, I, I asked who are we talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to, you know, play a wordplay. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. So. Wait, do we have any business we need to discuss at the top of this episode? We got a new sponsor. Oh, yeah. Our first sponsor. We got to give a shout out to our friends at Speaker Tree and Backline Coffee. If you are local to the Lynchburg area. You should check them out. Yeah, seriously. They are so awesome over there. And what I love about what Blake, the owner, is doing is building a local community of just people who love music just to love music. And that's what's important. Yep. That's why we started this podcast. We wanted to just celebrate the bands we liked, discover new bands that maybe we didn't know a lot about. Talk in the void of the internet and have some of you listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of just talking to ourselves. We got to share the, the crazy here. Yeah, why not? But yeah, you should check them out. Um, we highly recommend getting either a peach lemonade or their teen spirit drink, yes. which comes with a Nirvana logo. I guess it's their logo. It's their logo, right? Yeah. Nirvana, Nirvana logo lemon slice. It's so cute. It's cute. It's delicious. It tastes like a liquefied Jolly Rancher. It probably is not healthy for you, which makes it even better. And we'll be tagging them in some of our feed stories moving forward. So definitely check them out if you're in the Lynchburg area. You will not be disappointed. And stay tuned for a fun surprise from them. Not in this episode. In the future. But that's all you're getting out of this. Yeah. Let's get to the who. Who? 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 Yeah. Star-Lord. Who? (laughs) (laughs) I knew that joke was coming up. I knew it was coming, but like we start every episode, I got to preface things because why can't anyone just make music and have a family? Because then we wouldn't have anything to talk about on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. So it's not like the other disclaimers that I've given in the past. I think it's just more of a reaction. Buckle up. 
Yes. <laughs> I think when I went into this, I knew a considerable, I would say a considerable amount, maybe more like on the music side, but not like a behind the scenes side. That's the fun part. Uh, I agree. But it is, <laughs> <laughs> like Leah said, buckle up. We're in for a very wild ride. And we're just going to jump in because this is, this is insane. And full disclosure, I know exactly zero Who history. So this is my genuine reaction to everything yes. Bethana is telling me. I love when that happens. Put down the beer. Okay. So let's start. Let's start with the beginnings. That's where you should start. As, as every story starts, once upon a time. In Hollywood? No, just once upon a time. Okay. Once upon a time. In London, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a good place to start. Um, yeah. That, that's where all of our artists have been starting. Been in London. Yeah. We need to pick some American bands. Yeah. <laughs> We're really flexing our patriotism on this. Uh, yeah. Journey was American. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, so once upon a time. Okay. There are four, four gentlemen. Okay. Sir Roger Daltrey. He's not actually a sir. So was he already a sir no. when we started this? No, it's just for storytelling purposes. Okay. A knight, Pete Townshend, or I can never say his name. I want to say Pete Townsend, but it's Pete Townshend. I don't know. Townshend? Well, I have it as Townsend, but when I went back oh. and I was reading Wikipedia, there was an H in there. Call him Pete. Oh, call him Pete. <laughs> just call him Pete. Then there's a jest, Joker character called John Entwistle. And there's another character who I'm going to introduce later in this story. Okay. But all these characters grew up in a place called Acton in London. Act? Acton. Okay. Acton. Acton. And they all went to Acton Grammar School together. Aww. Yeah, it's, it's adorable. And Pete grew up in a family of musicians. His dad played saxophone. His mom was a singer. And early on, John and Pete become buds in their second year in school and they start a jazz group which i'm noticing a theme because elton started in a blues jazz thing rolling stones started with blues yeah it (laughs) themes guys yes it's confirming my theory that all rock is because of blues and jazz yes so thank you blues and jazz thank you for your contribution to rock history we salute you (laughs) but um so Interesting story about uh, John here. Around this time, both boys were interested in guitar. How about two guitarists? No, you. T- this isn't the eighties yet. <laughs> this is 1950. You can't have two guitarists. No, no, that's that's preposterous. So Entwistle, regardless, John was having a hard time with it because he had too large of fingers. So that would hurt you. Yeah, no, it's fair fair argument. So he moves to the bass. Thicker strings, larger fingers. Makes ma- perfect sense. Match made in heaven. But here's where it gets interesting. He couldn't afford one. So he builds one. Out of what? Well, how do you build your own bass? So here's what I imagine. I imagine this young kid in his dad's garage and building a base of whatever available wood is in his house, like that scene in Elf where <laughs> Will Ferrell builds an entire rocking horse out of the little TV stand. Okay. So that's what I'm imagining. He's grabbing his grandmother's armoire in the middle of the I night. Mean, no, it's in the basement. No one's paying attention to it. <laughs> then he's just, just hacking away, building a base. So that's a little bit about Pete and John's childhood. Yeah, childhood relationship. So enter Roger Daltrey, the lead singer. He is a transfer kid from a town called Shepherdbush, which is interesting because I'm from a town called Pinebush. So I related to that. (laughs) Hopefully his mascot wasn't as bad as ours because ours was called the Bushman, which was a caveman (laughs) carrying a club. That's a whole other sidebar. We're not going to go down right now. (laughs) But it explains so much, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But um, he, unfortunately, like most transfer kids... He's having a hard time fitting in. Yep. That usually is the case. Also for all musicians, but continue. Yes. <laughs> you know, kids are taking his lunch money. He's getting probably milk poured on his head. And he's just, I don't know if this actually happened. I'm just build, gonna, building the story here. Yeah. Set the scene. But then his life 
changes forever. And he discovers two monumental things. Rock and roll and gangs. Those two <laughs> should never combine. Oh no, this yep. is not going to end happily, is it? So my bro gets kicked out at age 15. Goes into the workforce. So what do you do when you get kicked out of school at the age of 15 and have been forced to work? You start a band. Better than starting a gang. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a band is a musical gang, but you know. Okay. Have you seen West Side Story? (laughs) Why is that the second time this has come up in our conversation? I know. We just talked about it two days ago. (laughs) So he starts a band. The band is called The Detours, and they form in 1959. Let me guess. They don't keep that name. Oh, I mean, (laughs) have we experienced any themes that alert you to this? (sighs) But how this band forms is very interesting. So basically, how it all starts off is Roger Daltrey, or I'll probably call him Daltrey, sees John walking on the street with his bass. I mean, how can you not? He's probably like, what the hell is this? Is this a guy's armoire with some strings touched to it? Sir, you have a box on your back. (laughs) But sees him walking down the street, just on the spot. Hey, you want to be in a band? And John's like, sure. Hey, I got a friend named Pete who plays guitar. And then Pete joins. Okay. And there you go. The detours form. And and, uh, I mean, I'm going to gloss over some of the details, but... The original lineup has Daltrey on lead guitar, another dude on vocals, another dude on drums, and then the one singer left over creative differences, so he leaves pretty early on in the picture. The first drummer is fired, and a semi-professional bro is brought in, but when the band auditions for a top executive at a record label, the top executive guy complains about the drumming, which makes Townsend, I'm sorry, Pete, turn on the drummer. The drummer leaves, but is somehow persuaded for the band to borrow his kit for stand-ins and auditions. So they kick their drummer out but steal his drums? Yes. Well, no, he agreed to it. Okay, so it's not that was dumb. This will become a very important bit in a little bit. I'm sure it will. But we're going to move on. So after no luck with singers, Daltrey gives up the guitar for vocals, which is for the best. Because his vocals are very unique. Okay. Um, and they had to grow over time. But yes, good good choice. Now let's talk about one of the most fascinating people to ever grace rock history. There is a young man. We're going to go back in time a little bit. Back okay. to the 1950s here. His name is Keith Moon. And a little snapshot about Keith. Okay. To kind of give a little bit about his childhood He was a high energy, kind of weird kid in a normal family, was terrible at school, except for music class. He quit school at the age of 15, like Daltrey. It's a theme here. Yes. And worked like 20 jobs within those few years after school and was fired from each one. That also sounds right. (laughs) So that's the the individual that we're about to come in contact with. Okay. That's his... His upbringings. I have no clue what he looks like, but I just picture him having crazy hair. Okay. In some pictures, he kind of does, but not like, it's more like a greasy craziness, like I don't brush it kind of thing. That's exactly what I picture. Oh, well, there you go. Spot on. But Keith, through all this, is interested in music. And at the time of the detours, while they're touring. (laughs) Detouring? I didn't even write that in the notes. That's great that that came naturally. (laughs) Anyway, the detours are detouring. And Keith, during the same time, is a part of a surfer rock band called the Beachcombers. That's a dumb name. Yeah. It's not going to last. It's the height of surf rock. It's the best thing to come up with. But they're playing the same circuit as the detours. Okay. So when Keith hears they're looking for a new drummer, he goes to one of the detour shows, approaches the band and says, I can play better than your drummer. So he said, all right, get on the drums. Let's see what you got, hotshot. And this bro plays 
so insanely, Daltrey has reported his jaw dropped to the floor. Not, you know, physically, just metaphorically. <laughs> Otherwise he could not sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah that would be a problem. And just he just goes nuts on the drums. One of the best drummers they've ever heard. And then he destroys part of the drummer's kit in the uh, process. Oh. I believe he broke, like, part of the skin. Uh, like, broke a couple drum skins and then, like, part of a cymbal. Just from playing so hard or on purpose? Well... We're going to get to that. But like in this instance, it just broke. Okay. It just broke. Spontaneous rippage occurred. (laughs) Yes. But regardless, he gets invited into the band. I mean, it was worth it. Now let's go back. Guess whose kit that was? The drummer that got kicked out. Yeah. His name I forgot. Oh, I didn't say his name. Because he's not relevant? It's not relevant to my story. (laughs) (laughs) I do think about that when I am compiling those, these things. It's like, yeah, I could put their name in, but... They're not important. Are they saying in the story or no not? No one is going to remember them. If they're only on one page, I don't mention them. <laughs> I don't add their name. Okay. But this next bit is, I think, the best part of the entire story. The beachcombers. I would imagine, but I can't indefinitely say that they're pissed mm, that I mean. Moon left for the Who. So they decide to hold auditions for their new drummer. And who do they call in? The newly fired, semi-professional drummer the Detours got rid of. Okay. But then, he auditions, and they're all so unimpressed, and they don't let him <laughs> in the band. Maybe maybe it's time you go find another job, bro. I mean, I mean... Let's have that talk. We can take this as, this guy's technically a semi-professional. Yes. And he's getting shown up by a kid who can't hold a job. I'm just saying, there's, there's hope in this story for someone. Yes, I'm, not for the fire drummer. Yeah, just not for the fire drummer. <laughs> anyway. So, a little bit about the name change. Because, obviously, they do not stay as the Detours. That was a smart decision. But shortly after Keith joins the band, the group finds out there's another band called Johnny Delvin and the Detours. So That's, that's even worse. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. So, obviously, that name can't stay. There has to be a new name. So Pete and his roommate Richard stay up all night thinking of names. And they take this like meta, almost deadpan approach with these names. Like no one, the group. The group. The hair, because Roger Daltrey had crazy hair. But then the name The Who comes up. And that's the name Daltrey chooses. It's a good choice. Yeah. I also like the group. The group wouldn't be bad, but there is actually a band called The Band mm. from the 70s, which it, it was kind of the scene of the 70s, like find the most <laughs> meta names you can find and put it in there. There was a band called Bread. <laughs> like, it's just... I, I mean, we've learned from the Rolling Stones, if you just name your band after the thing you see, it might work. So who did the Who see? Themselves. <sighs> They were looking in a mirror. Or they saw that, that uh, one character in Doctor Who where they like, dis- like you see him and then as the soon silence. as you like. Yeah, and then you turn around and you don't see him anymore. I love those episodes. That is one of the, side note, that is the, one of the best story arcs in that show. Agreed. So jumping into their early career, at first they get a manager who tries to make the band a part of the mod movement. Do you know anything about that at all? Not really. So if you saw pictures of how people were dressing, it would probably click in your head. Like think like tweed jackets. Okay. That's about, and that's really popular in the UK during the 60s. Yes. So it's all about fashion. It's all about scooters. That's what Wikipedia says. I'm going with it. I mean, yeah, I can see it. But the mod movement also relies heavily on rhythm and blues. So the manager changes their newly named The Who to The High Numbers. I don't like that. No. I'm going to guess no one else liked that. No, it's it's a dumb name. And they record a few songs, they flop, and the band goes back to The Who, and they get rid of the manager. Okay. Great move. Um, but shortly after, they hire two people in the manager group, and this is interesting. Their names are Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. And they're actually filmmakers. Interesting choice. Mm-hmm. 
And they wanted to film a live show of the band and they chose the who and they filmed it at one of their most popular places they performed called the railway hotel. Okay. So now we get into right around this time, what the who is known for most. Um, so early on, they're known for destroying their instruments. Yes. I did know that. Yes. How that all started was one night during the show at the railway hotel. I don't think it was the same night they were filming. Um, just another performance. Pete breaks his guitar head on the low ceiling by accident. People start laughing at him. Now, one thing that's going to become apparent as I go on is Pete's got an anger problem. He needs some counseling. Yes. The bro needs a lot of counseling. (laughs) But regardless, he's getting pissed and he just breaks the entire guitar. I mean, the head's already gone. So he's just like taking it on the floor and just smacking it, smacking it and just throws it away. Did they have the money to replace these instruments? Well, here's the thing. And I'm pretty sure this was in the same show, but I imagine Keith Moon saying, hold my drugs. <laughs> and one-ups him and destroys his entire kit. No. And he leaves the stage, comes back with a fire axe, and starts dismantling the stage. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Oh, no. That is... And that is how the Who's auto-destructive art oh, no. is born. This is not going to end well, is it? But most people, that's how they get their audience, because people wanted to see that. I mean, I would want to see that. <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't? Uh, but everyone kept coming out. They want to see their instruments destroyed. So it became pretty, like, big part of their act. So the band starts taking off in the UK. They get signed to Bruns- Brunswick Records, which is also partnered with Decca Records in the US. Um, well, Decca. Yeah. And the first single they come up with is I Can't Explain, which hits the top top 10 charts in the UK and is a favorite among pirate radio stations. Pirate? Yes, pirate. Not as in, you know... Swashbuckler? Yeah, not in the swashbuckling, walk the plank kind. Okay. Like illegal radio stations. There are illegal radio stations? This is is the 60s, man. It is... It is free range. And they make fun of us for illegally downloading music. <laughs> we're, not, we're not out here setting They're up the illegal ones. radio stations. They're the ones investing money. To yeah. like... We just want free downloads. Yeah. We're not We're not intruding upon the airwaves. Yeah, well, that's what they're doing. We're and, something and then, new every day. Yeah. And then their next single was Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, which was originally re- rejected by Decca Records in the U.S., for being too weird. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because I haven't listened to the song, but the way it was described is they were really playing with like slides of the guitars and kind of weird noises. How, what kind of noises can we get out of a guitar okay. kind of thing? So they're just like, nah. <laughs> and they move on. But it hits the top 10 charts in the UK. Interesting. Then in 1965, they released the song My Generation. And it was originally written as a slow blues song by Pete. Pete is one of the main songwriters for The Who, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. This is a tangent. Roger Daltrey wanted it to pretty much just be a cover band. But Pete's the one who was encouraged by the two filmmaker managers they have to start writing. Now, we're going to get into Roger because he also is not a pretty penny. (laughs) Roger is controlling we're just going to get into it. I'm getting off track. Okay. We're going to get into all their drama and all their dirty laundry here. But, so it's written as a slow blues song. But they decided to turn it more into a fast-paced rock song. And that one I have listened to, and that was the right decision. Because mm-hmm. it's it, it's pretty good for the 60s. It rose to number two, which was the group's highest charting single in the UK. Okay. So around this time, they start touring the US as well. And I believe this was their first U.S. tour. And it's the last day on that tour. And they're playing the song on a televised show called The Smother Brothers Show. Okay. Like I said, it's the 60s. You got the Ed Sullivan Show. You got, I think Johnny Carson's coming up the road. Okay. Like, you just name it after someone. And put the word show after it. So my friend Keith. <laughs> what is he going to do? Crazy Keith. Without... 
telling the band. He, it's not off to a good start. <laughs> he bribes a stagehand to put explosives. No. <laughs> in his bass drum. No. But the stagehand puts in 10 times more. <gasps> no. Than he was supposed to. <laughs> no. So the band's doing their thing. They're getting to the end of the song. They're going into their auto-destructive art. Pete's, you know, smacking his guitar into his amp, breaking it on the floor. And then, you know, Keith's like is punching the heads in. And then all of a sudden at the very end of the song, boom, the entire thing just blasts. And Keith gets flown off his set and he's on a riser too. So he just falls straight down Cuts his arm on a cymbal shrapnel piece. It blew up his cymbals? It blew up the cymbals and turned into a shrapnel. Pete gets his hair singed and his left ear starts ringing, which he later developed tinnitus, which he later developed hearing loss. Yeah. So that's what happens in explosions. Yes. And then a studio camera and monitor was completely destroyed. Of course it was. (laughs) But... They actually... But they all survived. They all survived? That's a miracle. They're fine. Well, not fine. But like... <laughs> as fine as they could be. Yeah. A massive explosion. But it, this actually, the whole thing is still... Like they use that for one of their documentary films called The Kids All Right. <laughs> and like they start their entire movie with just that. That, ex- that whole montage. I don't blame them. Did the stagehand get fired? Do we know? Uh, I'd imagine. I would hope so. I mean... Obviously that kid can't be trusted. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But before we go on to their bigger projects, we need to talk about the chemistry in this band. I mean, it Uh, obviously causes explosions. Well, literally (laughs) and figuratively speaking here. And like I said earlier, these guys are not the prettiest pennies. A lot of them got issues. Yeah. Like just anger issues. And simply put, they just hate each other. That's problematic when you're in a band Mm -hmm. together and And touring constantly, recording constantly. Yeah. Um, But the only two people who don't hate each other are John and Pete because they grew up together. So they're they're close friends. They go to bars after shows. They're hanging out. So Roger is incredibly controlling of the band what he says goes and you know he started the band so he thinks he has full control of the band so he runs the band like a tyrant pretty much and then one event after one event in germany roger throws away keith's drugs and then beats him up (laughs) that's not how you solve the problem i mean sure you throw away drugs to get someone help Yes, that, but you don't beat them up. You don't beat them up afterwards. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like, get clean, Keith. I'm pretty sure it was like, I hate you and I'm going to just drown your drugs because it's the only thing important to you in your life. (laughs) So it was very malicious. Um, When they get back to the UK, the band, along with the managers, kick out Roger. But then let him back in on the condition that everyone in the band gets a say and it's run like a democracy. Another example, Pete... During one of the shows, gets so mad at Keith, which noticing a theme here. Yep. Always we're always picking up themes. Gets so mad at him and rams his guitar into Keith while on stage. What? And he suffers bruises for weeks. And Why then, are you picking on him? I, I, I mean, mean he, to be fair, he probably did something. It, but we're gonna get to Keith <laughs> in a second, in a hot second here, because. Okay. Like I said, he's probably one of those fascinating people, but we're, we're going to stick with these guys for a second. Okay. But eventually, after so much fighting, Pete and John leave the band, but then come back a week later. No. So it's like long. this thing of like, can't live with them, can't live without them. Yeah. It's very, honestly, a very unhealthy, toxic relationship. <laughs> really. These guys, yes, they made some absolutely incredible music. But they probably shouldn't have been in a band together. Probably not. Or they should have went and tried to work it out in counseling, like a group counseling session. No one went to counseling in the 60s. I'm just saying, <laughs> looking back retrospectively here. They probably should have. They probably, yeah. They should have been encouraged towards that. But they're a mess. 
let's just get it out there. And yeah. But let's move on to 1968. Pete is getting off drugs. And he is listening to the teachings of an Indian philosopher. Also a constant 60s theme. Yep. His name, the philosopher's name is Meher Baba, who claims to be God in human form. Cool, cool. So from there, he starts working on a concept album called Tommy. Mm-hmm. So the fact, have you ever heard anything from Tommy? Like besides Pinball Wizard? Nope. Okay. That's, that's the one song I know. So the facts that it appears he made that entire album not on drugs is beyond me. <laughs> like Not a single line of cocaine was involved in this video. I mean, it's wild. It is just a wild album and movie I mean, front to back. Just the song Pinball Wizard. Yes. Definitely was inspired by drugs. I mean, <laughs> probably more like like two or three times removed because he's not on drugs anymore. But, but still. Yeah. But for those who didn't listen to our Ellen John episode, I'll give you a quick summary of it. Tommy is about a kid who becomes deaf, dumb, and blind from an event where his father comes back from the dead, becomes a pinball wizard, and then eventually turns into a guru. So Which yeah, I still feel like wizard should be above guru, but yeah, that's true. Like I always see guru as more of like that stoic religious figure who's like in the ear of the wizard yeah he's like the pinball monk yes the wizard is the ultimate pinball being correct but yeah we're not here to debate the pinball levels (laughs) look we can lay that out we'll build out a chart for it (laughs) how this world should actually work that's right also fun fact speaking of pinball wizard they wrote that song so that a prominent new york times music critic who is also a pinball enthusiast, oh would give them a good review. That is the biggest <laughs> suck-up move I've that ever is, heard in my nope, life. Nope, that's the way to do it. <laughs> it's great. It's fantastic. So they planned on releasing the album around Christmas of 1968, but stalled it to 1969 in order to make it a double album and give the story more depth. When they finally released the album in May of 1969... It is a critical hit. They sell 200,000 copies in the U.S. within the first two weeks, which is a big deal back then. Yeah. Um, Four months later, the band performs at a little festival called Woodstock. Of course they did. I'm so excited. It's the first time I get to talk about Woodstock in the podcast. I've been waiting for this. They were slated to play at Saturday Saturday night, but because, you know, drugs, uh, they didn't play until 5 a.m., I really want to know how that schedule worked. That's probably a conversation for later. Yeah. But that's a long delay. As a little teaser, we're eventually going to do a whole, like, maybe... Mini-series? Yeah, mini-series on Woodstock. So we'll probably cover that more in depth. Anyway, so they play most of their new album, Tommy. And of course, after it's done, Pete throws his entire guitar at the audience. Why? How else would you finish it? Well, yeah, I got to end it classy. (laughs) But this is interesting. I didn't include this in my notes. The band actually hated Woodstock. I mean, I can see how you would hate it from a performer aspect. Yeah, because everyone's high. No one, no one's going to remember that they saw you. But they said like during when they were singing their song, See Me, Feel Me, the sun started rising. And they said God was their lighting technician that day. That's, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. I would pay to watch... A sunrise concert. That would be that great. That would be super cool. Someone get on that. That's actually a really good idea. Anyway, you can have <laughs> We're that. We're stealing free. that idea. No one else uses it. Oh, never mind. You can't have <laughs> free guitars. We don't have enough money to promote a music show. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so when 1970 rolls around, the band is considered one of the greatest live rock bands. Move out of the way, the Rolling Stones. The Who is here. Mick will argue that point with you, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the band shortly after releases a live album, which was regarded as one of the best live rock albums of all time. And then their next album. What was the name of the live album? I don't remember. It was like oh. live at, Oh, I think it was in San Francisco. That's not an exciting Yeah, album. it's not as exciting. But their next album the band releases is called Who's Next? Hit. Which, yeah, I know. That, they, that's a clever title. I'll give them that. Once you name yourself who, 
You got a lot to play with. Yeah. There's a lot of word plays that you can do. But that becomes a hit as well. And their most well-known song is on that album, Baba O'Reilly. My millennial brain knows that song from the... This is weird. But from the movie trailer for Ants. That Ants movie that was like released right around the same time as Bugs Life. For some reason, I wasn't allowed to watch Ants. Well, I mean, why would you when Bugs Life is way more superior of a film? Which one has aged correctly? This is true. I'm just going to leave it there. I didn't didn't know that song was in that trailer. Yeah. My brain just always goes to that, and I don't know why. That song is also one of the first examples of synth. Synth. Here we go synthesizers there we go synthesizers in rock music and so and that album reached number one in the uk so they're to blame for the synthesizer boom (laughs) yes somewhere 50 years later a young man called sunny part of skrillex would (laughs) (laughs) would take that to a whole other meaning skrillex thanks you sir (laughs) but it reaches number one in the uk number four in the us and after touring the album The band takes a break from touring. Well-deserved. Not because of everything they've achieved, because they probably are about to murder each other. I mean, it's probably good that they did that. It really is. And between that time, they begin to have a fallout with their managers. Um, And of course, like I said, the band's tensions are rising. Pete believes Roger wants to sell out. And Pete thinks... I'm sorry, Roger thinks Pete's music is becoming pretentious. <laughs> so. Those are some big words. Yeah. Yeah. But then their next album in 1973 comes out called Quadrophenia. Mm. And it's another concept album about a kid named Jimmy who goes through all sorts of life crises and like somehow it ends up at the mod movement. So I think they're channeling some of their life experience of trying to be forced into the mod movement there. Probably. But that gets to number two in the UK and in the US. And it's a movie too, right? A documentary? Yes. They showed it at Riverviews randomly like oh. a couple of months ago. I kept getting ads for See, it. See, I didn't even know it was a film until I started researching. Oh, I only knew that from the ads I kept getting. That's interesting. It is around the same time that their managers, Lambert and Stamp, part ways with the band. Um, in 1974, the band starts working on a film adapt- adaptation of Tommy. And it's weird at AF. But it's great at the same time. After the Elton John episode, I watched the Elton John scene. It is very weird. You need to watch the film. No. There is this scene. Okay, because in my history of a rock and roll course I took in high school, which was really (laughs) watching a bunch of old rock films. Sounds like a great class. It was so, it, it was one of my favorite classes. And like kind of the peak of the classes, we went to the Woodstock Museum, which was pretty awesome. So it was, it was one of my favorite classes I took in high school. But we watched Tommy. And there is this scene that I remember. So I remember the pinball scene. Mm-hmm. I remember some of the opening, some of the other middle stuff. But the scene that like sticks out in my head is there's this scene where Tommy's mom is basically... I think she's either looking at a mirror or a TV. And then the glass crashes and out of that void comes baked beans. What? And she gets covered in baked beans. Okay, drugs definitely went into influencing <laughs> Well, this. it's interesting because, you know, I always knew that scene, but there was an album before my generation came out called The Who Sells Out. And on the cover is Roger Daltrey and a bunch of baked beans. So I think that's where it came from. But yeah, it's weird. That's weird. But it's also just a fun watch. <laughs> Pete and John basis handle the arrangement they get a star-studded cast of tina turner elton john eric clapton and jack nicholson who i forgot was in that film (laughs) um the film premiered in march of 1975 to a standing ovation the film was also nominated at the academy awards for best original soundtrack that makes sense yeah it uh, It's a great album. It's definitely one of the best. Um, So I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit to 1976. And the band, you know, they're they're getting along fine. They work through their issues. 
you know, Someone. Roger said, hey, I messed up, man. And Pete said, no, 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 man, I've messed up. Aww. No, I'm just kidding. They're, up, they're pissed at each other. Aww. And Pete says, you know what? I'm taking the year off. And you night, do that. You get some space from those. Guys he does. Cause before he, you kill them all. He's got a lot of anger issues he's got to work through. And in 1977, the band says it's putting a, a pause on touring. Probably for the best. 1978, though, they start recording their album, Who Are You? Hey, I know that song from CSI. Yes. Thanks, CSI. <laughs> I was so tempted to sing it again, but I didn't want to cut it. Yep. Stupid copyright we'll laws. We'll save you that. But we're going to pause the story here. And we're finally going to get around to talking about Mr. Keith Moon. Okay. The moment we've been waiting for. Yes. So, a little bit about Keith Moon's legacy. Prominently known for being the drummer of The Who. Being an absolutely amazing drummer. I mean, especially for that time. He was just a really good drummer. Um, but he had some deep, deep-seated issues. If you couldn't tell by now. So evidence one, he has a lot of destructive behavior issues. He put explosives in a drum kit. Yes, but he's also known, Leah, for destroying hotels and friends' houses. <laughs> <laughs> he, one of his favorite pastimes... Is blowing up hotel toilets. And why? <laughs> well, that's a great question. I don't have an answer to, unfortunately. I just have the evidence. Okay. Um, but he would put cherry bombs in a in the toilet bowl and blow them up to pieces. There's also this like story I don't have in here, but it just sticks out in my mind of like I was listening to music in his hotel room. And one of the managers comes and complains and says, you can't have that up so loud. Like, it's too noisy. And he's like, all right, one moment. And he, like, walks into the bathroom, puts in a cherry bomb, and says, wait. And then the toilet explodes. Oh, my god! And he says, now that, sir, is noise. This is just ooze. And he closes the door. <laughs> oh, God. What a weird man. But one of the biggest evidences of his destructive behavior, like the, the pinnacle of it, was he's in a Flint, Michigan Holiday Inn. It is his 20th birthday. Oh, no. And the record label is throwing him a big party at the hotel. Okay. And in typical Keith fashion, he destroys the hotel. Um, manager comes up, tries to stop the party. Keith gets a birthday cake and slams it in the manager's face. Oh, no. Then he gets a fire extinguisher and starts coating the cars in the parking lot. <laughs> Then he dives into a waterless pool and knocks out his front tooth. Oh my. Or like part of his front tooth. Anyway, he's too intoxicated, obviously, to remember all this. But because he's too intoxicated, so get this. They call up a dentist at 3 a.m. because he has a show the next day. And this dentist has to put back his tooth in place with no anesthesia because he's too intoxicated for it. Oh. And what it's all said and done, I think they he did $24,000 of damage that night. Oh my gosh. Which with inflation is a lot. That's a lot, a lot. There's there's a reason that bands aren't allowed to stay in certain hotels anymore. Yes. Well, he was definitely banned from there and all holiday ends moving forward. But he cost that band so much money. I bet he did. They often went into debt. And by 1975, he had only $43 to his name, which is like $3.90 with inflation. So That's so sad. He couldn't even go to McDonald's. Yeah. (laughs) Evidence number two is this guy, this guy had a drinking and drug problem. Obviously. Yeah. Like he, I mean, he would get intoxicated every night. He was on a certain type of... uh, amphetamine that had a lot of uppers in it, which is what was causing all this erratical, um, irrational behavior. Also, this was probably before FDA regulations, so there's probably yes. actual cocaine in that medication. Probably. And he is usually doing a combination of drinking and drugs. That's not going to end well. Like, there's an example... <laughs> ah, there's an example of his friend... Was trying to get him into ketamine, which is that horse tranquilizer that gives people highs. Also not a good idea. No. And he says, you can only do like a little bit of the shot. 
And he's like, I'm Keith Moon. It does the entire thing and sips the entire thing of brandy and he passes out on stage. Yeah, I bet he did. He actually passed out on stage because of drugs a lot. And there was one instance where he kept passing out in a show and they took him off stage and Pete goes, is there any drummers in the audience? Any drummers at all? And this guy named Scott gets up there and finishes the set You with go, them. Scott. You save the day. <laughs> I think about this a lot when I'm doing research, like on the Stones and these bands that had severe drug problems. Like it's obviously a problem when you can't mm-hmm. do your your job anymore. Like yeah, I, I've always wondered when they come to a show or a rehearsal and they're just stoned out of their mind. How do they remember their songs? Because a lot of these live performances, if you strictly listen to them, you can't tell that they're hot. You right. can by watching them, but they remember and play fine. This just baffles my mind as someone who sometimes forget how words work sober. So I think it's honestly, <laughs> once you've been doing drugs and alcohol so much, you just like get used to it. Like your body adapts to it. Yeah, but they're and you still can function at a certain level. They're not functional humans, but they're functional musicians, which is just an interesting yeah. psychological yeah. phenomenon. And on a tangent with that, like what's also interesting is like Pete, not Pete, Keith was reportedly like one of the nicest people like really like had a great heart Mm -hmm. to him was a warm person when he was sober when he was high or drunk that's when all this behavior started Mm -hmm. and that obviously was causing a chemical imbalance Mm -hmm. and we're going to get to this in a little bit but one of the doctors in uh, the documentary i was watching one of the doctors was reportedly had said when he's trying to get clean, that he is so addicted that there was no hope. That's sad. It's really sad. Um, but let's get into evidence number three. And this is actually incredibly, incredibly heartbreaking. So it's 1970. He's at a grand opening of a nightclub with his wife. And at this club, there are a few skinheads that do not like that the successful rock star is in there. He's not bothering yeah. you? No, he's not. He's really. I mean, awesome. he may have been, but eh, theoretically, he's not I, bothering you. Yeah, um, but trouble begins to brew, and Keith's friend Larry, who's with him, says we should leave. But Keith decides to stay till closing time, and everyone is leaving, and the skinheads go to Keith's car, which was driven by his friend and chauffeur Neil Neil Boland, mm-hmm. and they start destroying the car, start breaking in windows beating it and then Neil gets out of the car while it's in gear and tries to stop the skinheads and protect Keith Keith takes over the driving wheel is just trying to get the car out of there and steer it out of this crowd of skinheads mm-hmm. but Neil gets stuck under the car and gets crushed to death Ooh. and Keith never recovered from yeah, that I don't necessarily blame him for that I mean for he would have intense nightmares about yeah. the experience through the rest of his life yeah i it, don't know how you would not so you know i think before we get into this next section because it's also very heartbreaking i just want to preface this guy it's sad because he really from the people from the doc Mara was watching said he was really just really nice guy but drugs and alcohol just honestly ruined him absolutely ruined him Mm -hmm. so this next part is both heartbreaking but it also is super creepy really creepy bring it on so before his death because he does have an early death he dies at 32 he was really trying to dry out he was on meds to help with his alcohol withdrawal symptoms Mm -hmm. a week before his he dies his ex-wife which he's always stated as that she is the love of his life, mm. has a disturbing dream. And in the dream, her friend is calling her to say Keith has died. And she said it was so real that it greatly disturbed her. Uh-oh. The last night um, that he was alive, he goes to a premiere for a film called The Buddy Holly Story. Now, Buddy Holly, from my understanding, is one of the first, if not the first 27er. Yes. The one who starts it up. I think it's Buddy Holly. Because he died in a plane crash. Yes. And it it starts off the whole 27er conspiracy. With Fats Domino. Yes. 
Yes. And so he then goes to an after party with Paul and Linda McCarthy afterwards. After the events, he goes home to his flat in London. Now, let's pause here and talk about this flat. This flat was owned by Mama and Papa singer Cass Elliott, who died in that flat at age 32. Oh, no. From, like, cardiac problems from drugs. And the landowner who owned that flat was certain it was haunted and hesitated renting it to Keith. But Pete said, well, lightning doesn't strike the same place twice. No. So Keith comes home, starts taking his medicine for his alcohol addiction, forgets how many he's taking, and his girlfriend finds him dead the next morning. Mm. And he's 32, the same age Cass Elliot dies in, in that, that same, same flat. Dang. I mean, it's both heartbreaking because he's such, his whole story is, he could have been just a really great drummer and a great person who's still alive today. But drugs and alcohol. Yeah. And then there's just this element of like weird ass haunted flat that you just throw into it. That is creepy. Yeah. It kind of makes my... (laughs) Do not like. Yeah. It kind of gets some goosebumps when I do think about it. But anyway, it's incredibly sad. Please don't do drugs. Please learn from this. (laughs) I think when we say these things and like we get into these deeper parts, it's like... (laughs) You also have to realize like how destructive this stuff is. Like we kind of be like, oh yeah, rock and roll is drugs, drugs it's, and it's alcohol. It's funny when Keith Richards thinks there's dwarves at his door. Yeah, it's not funny. There's this really <laughs> irrational, destructive side that comes with it, both internally and obviously externally with yeah. Keith. But it's incredibly sad. So when "Who Are You" drops, you know that whole album release is overshadowed by Keith's death. Mm. Because they're very, I think they're only off by a couple months. And though the album did rise to number six in the UK and number two in the US, um, I mean, everyone's just devastated at that point. Kenny Jones becomes the new drummer for The Who. The band starts playing again in May of 1979. Um, But it would be a very hard road ahead for the band. There was a tragedy that happened at one of their shows in Cincinnati where 11 people died. What happened? What happened was there was some faulty seating situation. And basically, it was something like the band was warming up, but everyone thought the band was starting and the doors hadn't opened yet. So this like stampede Mm -hmm. starts and it's not like up to code the theater are playing in. So 11 people get trampled to death. That's really sad. But, Although, if I'm going to die, I'm going to have to say a concert is a really I mean, good if you die at a Struts concert, I, would, I will both be sad, but also happy for you. At least you knew I you. would die happy. <laughs> yeah. And she, did, she died doing I what died she loved. I died doing what I loved. But um, here's the really messed up part, though. <laughs> we haven't gotten to the really messed up part? No. No one tells the band. What? Until after the show. What? That's... That's... Horrible, because then they look like assholes because they don't acknowledge Well, it. the reason why was management was so afraid that more riots would start. Valid concern, but yeah, you still gotta tell the band because they gotta they should they should acknowledge it from stage, right? Because otherwise they look like heartless right. jackasses. Well, in a way, I mean, not saying that they aren't, <laughs> yeah. But from a public image PR persona standpoint, they should have told them right. But the band is absolutely, you know, devastated. That sticks with them for a long time. As we learned from the Stones, you watch someone die at your concert, you're not going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's right around the time where Keith, like, Keith is only gone six yeah. months. They're not okay anyway. Yeah. And then after that, right around that time, there's a film adaptation of Quadrophenia, which comes out in the UK and is a success. That same year, the documentary, The Kids Are, are All Right comes out um and keith did see a rough cut of that film before he died that's nice so it is nice but the band is fighting again (laughs) as usual pete is becoming super depressed and briefly starts doing heroin again that's not gonna help your depression at all yeah and then the inevitable happens the band breaks up oh i thought he was gonna overdose (laughs) oh god no (laughs) No, he's still alive. <laughs> he's, he's still, Usually how heroin he's still stories end. He's like 74. He's good. But the band breaks up in 1982. 
Have they ever gotten back together? Are we getting there? Well, that's next segment. Okay. It's called Reunions. Oh, good. Maybe. So the band does briefly unite throughout the next few decades. They perform at Live Aid in 1985. As did everybody else. Yeah. Then they do a reunion tour in 1989. Then they do some like charity reunion shows here and there in the 90s. Uh, then there's some more sad news. In 2002, when they were playing a U.S. tour, John Entwistle is found dead in his hotel room from a cocaine overdose. Dang. He was like in his late 40s, early 50s. But his son actually came out and said, that the who must go on. So they continued the tour without Entwistle. These guys like need so serious we're counseling. we're down to two original members. Yes. And ironically, it's Roger and Pete. Aww. The two people have always been in each other's throats. <laughs> That's not a good situation. But you know what? I think the universe didn't plan it, but it's kind of like the universe's way of saying you guys should work on things. Yeah. End well. Yeah. And I hope, I mean, they're both still alive. I hope you guys do end well. Reconcile our differences. Yeah, because you guys have a ton, a ton of really just insane things that have happened to you. And I just hope they get reconciled and they just heal. Anyway. And then in 2010, they perform at the Super Bowl, which I remember that show. Do you remember that show? I don't, but... Why have our last three episodes all been about Super Bowl <laughs> Because after the, we talked about this in the Prince episode. Oh, yeah. After like the Justin Timberlake. incident. Yeah. They were like, uh, uh, safe. 70s band, 70s band. Old guys, old guys. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Minimize the risk. <laughs> um, the Who won't do anything weird. They're safe. They're fine. I they took drugs in the 60s. It's 2010. I want to hear that conversation in the booking agents yeah, office. Yeah, right. Who won't do anything weird? Uh, we, the who? Yeah, that sounds safe. That's fine. Um, and then in 2002, they close out the Olympics in London. Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Can we... Oh, wait. The Olympics are not in London next time. Never mind. No, it's in Tokyo. And then in 2015, they announced... They announced their second farewell tour. Now, remember... 1982, when they broke up, they had a farewell tour. Okay. This is the second farewell tour because, yes, they're broken up, but they keep having reunion shows. You gotta keep making and that And charity money. things, yeah. So, <laughs> however, they just announced this year. Oh, yay. They're doing a moving on tour. A moving on tour? <laughs> what are they moving on to? The afterlife? <laughs> no. I don't know. <laughs> but they're doing the moving on tour. And... They're coming out with a new album. I don't know how I feel about that. I hope they name it Who Are We? It's like very introspective yeah. about their life. Yeah. Maybe it's acoustic. That'd be cool. And it's just the two of them. That'd be cool. And it's them looking back on their lives. I kind of want to go see them on tour now. Oh, I would love to go see them on tour. By the way, that is my history of The Who. That was a wild And despite, ride. you know, when I first started this, I was like, oh, this band, they didn't really start to the 60s and the 80s. That's only two decades. A lot can happen in 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is a nine page outline, folks. I usually write six or seven. So there, okay. there's a lot. So a lot to unpack here. Yeah. But that's the who. Takeaway thoughts. Great music. With Crazy some guys people. that need to work out some issues. And RIP to Keith Moon and John Edwith Soul. I hope you're playing somewhere in heaven. What are you drinking during this episode? I am drinking. And let me just say, I've been waiting a couple weeks to say this. <laughs> this beer has been chilling since our last recording episode yeah. or recording session a month ago. This brew is called Da Shoots. <laughs> Who's it by? On Da Shoots. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually interesting now I look at it. The main cover of it, Da Shoots, is spelled D A space. S-H-O-O-T-Z with an exclamation point, but the actual company is spelled D-E-S-C-H-U-T-E-S. I picked that one because it has a nice blurb on the back about how no one could pronounce their name, so they just made a beer to tell people how to pronounce their name. Well, let me read this to you. It says, Des Cahooties, Des Chutes, Des Schwetzes. We've heard it all over our 30 years of craft brewing. Which is why we're making it easy these this time around. Simple in design, yet obsessively created within the obstacle course of our Bend Brewery. We offer this beer designed to pair with doing. 
<laughs> so we paired it with doing a podcast. Yes. Leave the overthinking to us. It's the only way we know how to brew beer. Deschutes. And I also... We may need to post a picture of this on our Instagram story because this is the it's prettiest can. The most beautiful beer I've ever there seen. There is a bear on this can surrounded by flowers and a moose and a baby cub. It This is... It's it's a pretty can. Now let's talk about taste because it is actually pretty good. It is pretty good. I'm I'm very impressed. It's a it, little, little bitter going in, but then it's sweet afterwards. It is an American lager. Pilsner. Pilsner. Mm-hmm. I thought it said lager. I can't, anyway. I can't read. There you go. You want to close this out? I'm going to close it out. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and we recently added Stitcher. We're probably not going to ever mention Stitcher again. So if you listen on Stitcher, this is your one chance. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you left us a review. Who knows? We might even read it on air. Special thanks to Josh Tarpley for our intro riff and Lauren Page Photography for our cover art. We'd like to give a special shout out to Backline Coffee and Speaker Tree for giving us our caffeine needs and our record needs. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast, at Bath Ann Tarpley, or at Leah Elizabeth.j. And as always, don't do drugs. Bye.